This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. While we've had a fairly dry March and April, we've had a number of big rain events in May. The corn looks pretty good, save for some washed out areas. However, we likely see some effects of nitrogen loss caused by nitrification and leaching soon if it keeps raining. Nitrogen deficient corn will look a paler yellow than it should and will grow slower. It is important to note though that yellow corn at this current growth stage can be deceiving. The young corn could be having a difficult time getting its roots expanded while the tops are growing quickly. Yellowing corn, despite the adequate levels of nitrogen in the soil, nitrogen loss from leaching in our thin clay soils is less of an issue than in sandy areas. In clay soils, each inch of infiltrated rainfall moves the nitrate down the same one inch. This is only rain that has moved into the soil, but much of our rain has left in runoff, which takes a certain amount of nitrogen with it as well. Here, however, denitrification will be a much larger issue. Denitrification occurs when microbes can't get enough oxygen in waterlogged soils, so they use nitrate for the respiration and instead turn it into a gas. But before denitrification can occur, microbes have to turn the ammonia fertilizer into nitrates, and this process requires oxygen. This May, we've had some periods of completely saturated soil and periods of soil dry enough for gas exchange. This creates a good situation for denitrification. The conversion of ammonia to nitrate depends on oxygen availability in the soil, soil temperature, soil pH, fertilizer type, and lastly, how much fertilizer was applied. Anhydrous tends to have the lowest rate of conversion because the anhydrous ammonia placement suppresses the microbes at the application site. The more spread out the fertilizer, like from broadcasting rather than band placement, the faster the rate of conversion. Therefore, the question is how much nitrogen has been lost is in two parts. How much nitrogen has been converted to nitrate, and how much nitrogen has been denitrified. A study from Nebraska showed that optimum soil temperatures of 75 to 80 degrees and waterlogged for three days, 60% of the nitrate was denitrified. Our soils have been between 65 to 75 degrees for most of May and a few periods of waterlog, so a good percentage of nitrates will probably have been lost. We have plenty of warm and likely wet weather in front of us. The losses from denitrification will continue to decrease. In the worst of years, denitrification can reach from 40 to 50 percent, but this will be worse in lower parts of the field where water stands. Nitrates in the soil is really a balancing act of ammonia fertilizer converting to nitrates, nitrates being taken up by the plants or lost through denitrification. Also, organic matter breaking down into nitrogen. Tracking nitrate levels in the soil is not easy. The good news is that top dress nitrogen application applied before corn tassels is readily utilized. Application rates of 30 to 50 pounds of additional N is common. Closer to top dressing application, a profile test can help determine how much nitrogen is left in the soil and how much more needs to be applied. Although a profile test is more difficult to take, fewer overall samples are needed for an accurate application rate. Another option is to make check strips of higher application rates, around 50 to 75 pounds, to see how the corn yield responded in those areas. This of course only tells if the yield has been lost after the fact. If you have any questions about nitrogen losses or application rates, please contact me at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. 
transporting horses is a common practice in the equine world. Whether it's for a show, a move, or a visit to the vet, horses need to be transported from one place to another. However, transporting horses can be a challenging task, requiring planning to ensure the safety of the animal. The first step is to select the right trailer. The University of Maryland recommends using a trailer that's specifically designed for horses, as it provides a safer and more comfortable environment. The trailer should be large enough to accommodate the horse comfortably and allow enough space to move around. A non-slip floor will prevent the horse from slipping during transport. Having good ventilation is a must. Not only does good ventilation help keep horses cool in the trailer, but it also provides fresh air during the trip. Opening ceiling vents or windows can ensure good ventilation. When opening side windows, be sure to keep screens and window bars closed while traveling on roadways. It's exceptionally dangerous for a horse to have its head outside of a moving trailer, traveling at high speeds in traffic. Some items to pack in the trailer include a first aid kit for your valiant steed, a variety of bandages, bandage scissors, eye wash, thermometer, wound ointment, and equine anti-inflammatory. Also, include familiar feed and water buckets. In case of emergency, the contact information for your horse should be placed in both the vehicle and in the trailer. Prepare the horse for transport. Before loading, make sure it's in good health condition and fit for travel. The University of California Davis suggests giving the horse a thorough health checkup and ensuring it's up to date on vaccinations and deworming treatments. The horse should also be well rested and fed before the journey. Once the horse is ready, it's time to load it onto the trailer. The horse should be led onto the trailer calmly and tied securely using a quick release knot. Give the horse as much freedom of movement as is safe. Hay nets should be placed as low as possible while assuring that feet will not become entangled. Restraint of the head in the upright posture for long periods of time may severely compromise the horse's ability to clear their lungs, leading to shipping fever. This respiratory condition can become very serious if not caught early and treatment provided. During transport, it's important to monitor the horse's condition regularly. The trailer should be well ventilated to prevent overheating and ensure a constant supply of fresh air. The University of California Davis recommends stopping every two to three hours to allow the horse to stretch its legs and drink water. It's important to check the horse's temperature and overall condition during these stops. Transporting horses safely requires planning, trailer selection, preparing for travel, and monitoring the horse during the journey are just a few pointers. To learn more about hauling livestock, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Providing birds a food source is an easy way to provide for wildlife viewing opportunities. Three items to consider when starting a bird feeding program are feeder types, feeder location, and seed selection. Feeder types include ground or tray feeders, hopper feeders, tub feeders, and suet or basket feeders. Ground or tray feeders are designed to be set directly on the ground or close to ground level. 
Low-cut tree stumps are good locations for tray feeders. Trays with a lip around the edge help prevent seed from being scratched onto the ground. Use trays that have drain holes to reduce water buildup and reduce chances of mold. Hopper feeders or self-feeders are larger feeders that automatically disseminate seed onto a tray or platform as it is removed by the birds. Hopper feeders keep the seed dry and need to be refilled less often than other feeders. Tub feeders are lengths of glass or plastic tubing with openings and perches allowing the birds to land and feed. Suet or basket feeders range from simple onion bags to more elaborate wire cages and are designed to hold suet. Locating feeders requires one to consider not only the best viewing areas, but also protection for the feeding birds, ease in refilling and cleaning the feeder, and the variety of desired bird species. Predators will be attracted to feeding sites. Make sure there is escape cover in the form of trees, shrubs, or brush piles within 15 feet of the feeding location. This allows feeding birds a location to fly and hide when predators show up. In order to attract the widest variety of birds, it is important to locate feeders at different heights. Many birds feed from the ground while others are adept at feeding on raised trays or even on the hanging tub or suet feeders. Establishing a variety of feeders and feeding heights provides the best opportunity for viewing many different species of birds. Seed selection is also a very important component of bird feeding. Black oil sunflower seed and white millet seed are considered two of the better seeds to use when feeding birds. The black oil sunflower seeds can be used in tub feeders and mixed with the millet in ground and hopper type feeders. This combination of seeds is less apt to attract starlings and grackles than commercial mixes containing other types of seed. The final thing to keep in mind when considering feeding the birds is your commitment. During the winter months, birds come to depend on you as a steady source of from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Instruments with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so today we're hoping to shine a light on the mental health struggles that farmers can experience. Anxiety is the most common mental health struggle for farmers because of a lack of control over many growing and market conditions. Food production can be a major source of anxiety, especially when the weather does not cooperate or when markets for crops are down. Anxiety may seem minor, but your health can suffer even with moderate anxiety. Headaches, stomach issues, sleep disorders, and tense muscles are a few physical signs of building stress. Anxiety can evolve into depression and suicidal thoughts over time, so developing good coping strategies will help moderate stress and keep your emotional well-being a priority. Coping strategies are methods you use to minimize the effects of external stressors on your physical and emotional well-being. Breathing exercises will help manage acute stress, and small bouts of physical activity will break up obsessing over stresses. 
Counseling or therapy helps to organize your thoughts and identify helpful and harmful thoughts and behaviors. Counselors and therapists can also help you develop your own set of effective coping strategies. For a list of resources on mental health, visit kansasagstress.org or get in touch with your local extension office. Hobbies also function as a coping strategy, and gardening has many documented mental health benefits. Part of the reason why gardening exploded during the height of the pandemic is the desire of people to get out of the house and moving. Research from Texas A&M shows that gardening has the following effects on gardeners. Anxiety and stress reduction, attention deficit recovery, decreased depression, enhanced memory retention, mitigation of PTSD, reduced effects of dementia, and enhanced self-esteem. Gardening also stimulates the same part of your brain that art stimulates and provides many of the same mental benefits in addition to the physical activity benefits according to researchers from the University of Florida. This tracks for anyone who has designed a garden bed in order to coordinate the size, shape, and color of plants. In addition to the act of gardening, improving the look of the physical spaces you occupy can also improve mood, enjoyment, and relaxation. Sensory gardens that stimulate smell and touch also increase relaxation and focus. This is, however, not to say that gardening is all roses. Decreased self-esteem with the death of plants can be a mental hurdle to overcome in addition to a cost sink. However, the benefits of gardening far outweigh the drawbacks, so get growing. If you need any information on plants and gardening, your local land-grant university will have publications to make the gardening process as painless as possible. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Port Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.